Well, if you would turn to Titus chapter 3, we're going to try to near the end of our series on Titus. Titus chapter 3, and our scripture reading tonight is the first eight verses. So Titus 3 verses 1 through 8. So hear now God's holy word. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for all people. And God will add his blessing to this reading of his word. We come uh, to the fourth of five faithful sayings in the pastoral epistles, and I want to remind you of them. Uh, This one is... uh, Number four in the way we're looking at them, it's uh, not the fourth in the way they're in Scripture, because there's one in Second Timothy, but the, it's the fourth one chronologically, because there's three, there's three in First Timothy, there's this one in Titus, and there's one in Second Timothy. Remember, First uh, Timothy and Titus were the books written by Paul after the, his release for a period of time, after his first Roman imprisonment. Uh, So those two books came first, and then in his second Roman imprisonment, at which he expected his execution any moment, he wrote 2 Timothy, and that has the fifth of the uh, faithful sayings. So let me just have you survey them with me. Turn to 1 Timothy 1.15, 1 Timothy 1.15, it's the first of them. 1 Timothy 1.15, here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. <clears throat> then look at 1 Timothy 3.1, still in 1 Timothy 3 verse 1. Here is a trustworthy saying, if anyone sets his heart on an over- being an overseer, he desires a noble task. Uh, the third one is 1 Timothy 4, 9, and 10. This is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. And for this we labor and strive that we have put our hope in the living God, who is the Savior of all men, and especially of those who believe. 
Then this is the fourth one in Titus. And just looking ahead, 2 Timothy 2.11. 2 Timothy 2.11 is the uh, fifth of the faithful sayings. Here, and so 2 Timothy 2.11, here is a trustworthy saying. If we died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we disown him, he will also disown us. If we are faithless, he will remain faithful, for he cannot disown himself. And uh, just as sort of a comparison contrast with these uh, faithful sayings, uh, in three of them, the marker, this is a faithful saying. And remember, even though these words are used in a different form in a couple other books in the New Testament, this, these, this is the only place we find this marker. This is a faithful saying. Um, the first, uh, there's three of them where the marker comes first. Uh, in the first one in 1 Timothy 1.15, grace and saving sinners. And the second one in 1 Timothy 3.1, grace and a noble task. And then the last one in 2 Timothy, the marker comes first. This is a faithful saying. Uh, there are two in which the faithful saying comes after the saying. So in other words, the saying comes first. And then afterwards, Paul concludes this, what I just told you, is a faithful saying. The uh, third one from 1 Timothy 4, 8, and 9, grace in a disciplined life. And then this one tonight, uh, salvation by grace alone, by the work of the Holy Spirit. The, the, the marker, this is a faithful saying, comes after the saying. And then uh, there are two of them that have the added phrase, worthy of all acceptance. <clears throat> and, that, and it's the first one, 1 Timothy 1 15, and um, the third one from 1 Timothy 4 8 and 9. So we have Paul giving these statements. These were probably proverbial statements in the early church. Uh, they're we see in the, the pastorals here some what may have been hymns in the early church. These faithful sayings were proverbial statements and truths that had come down to be accepted uh, as uh, sort of a, almost like an, a creedal form in the early church. And so when Paul's pointing these things out, he's identifying things that were commonly understood and known in the life of the early church. And in, as we come here to Titus 3, what is the faithful saying? And on this, there's some measure of debate. Some say it's verse 3 through verse 7. Some 4, for, for four through verse 7. Uh, what I'm going to suggest to you is verses 3 and 4 are a preliminary background to the saying. That the saying itself is verses 5 and 6. And uh, perhaps 7. Seven is the fruit of the faithful saying or the truth of the faithful saying. And then verse eight is the marker. This, what he's just told us, is a uh, faithful saying. But there's one section I need to at least touch on. It's a, uh, in a sense, a prelude to the saying. It's the first two verses in this chapter. I really should have covered these two verses in my last sermon. 
But I don't want to make an entirely new sermon just for these two verses. So the last time, and I know you all remember this very well, the last time we talked about (laughs) Jason shaking his head, I wonder if we could quiz him and see if he, he remembers it. But at any rate, we were talking about grace and godliness and how Tim, T- Titus was told by Paul, if you look back at the verse, uh, chapter 2, verse 15, Paul's direction to Titus is, declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority, let no one disregard you. And the conclusion of the guidance for grace and godliness is in this, this collection of thoughts in verses 1 and 2. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. <clears throat> if God's grace is at work in our lives, we're going to pursue godliness, and these are characteristics of godly living that we ought to cultivate in our own lives. But I want to move on to the section of the faithful saying. And I believe 3 and 4, verses 3 and 4, is the background to the faithful saying. Because the faithful saying is going to focus on our redemption. Specifically the method and the, the um, uh, work of God in our redemption. And the background to that begins in verse 3 with a recognition of our depravity says, for we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing all our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. What a miserable description of life. But the reality is you and I will never come to know the grace of God in its richness and fullness. We will never come to know that if we don't come to an awareness of our own depravity outside of Christ. If we don't have a recognition of that, we will never embrace Christ. Uh, If someone were to ask you, what is the basic, absolute, necessary elements to becoming a Christian? The two things that you would direct them to, if you're having to boil it down to just a couple things, the first thing you would tell them is you have to know that you're a sinner. Because no one's going to ever call out to a savior if you don't know that you're a sinner. And so the background to appreciating the work of God in his grace and his redemption is a clear recognition of our depravity outside of Christ. And these verses are a um, gripping description of that. Foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved by all kinds of passions, um, hated by others, and hating one another. Uh, What a terrible, terrible description. And the non-Christian, part of what, why you would tell them they need to know that they're a Christian, of course, then they need to know the Savior to call out to him. Um, the part of the problem with the non-Christian is they think they are absolutely the most free people there are. They think, well, I can do whatever I want to do. And you and I realize and recognize and understand that they are, no, they are the most enslaved people. Uh, Jesus Christ says, 
Truly, I truly, 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 I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. And the unconverted, and you and I, when we were outside of Christ, we were slaves to sin. We could not not sin. We were, it was unable for us not to sin. It was as natural as breathing. Uh, and the reality of understanding and appreciating God's wonderful grace is understanding our, our depravity. And that's the significant background to the saying about God's grace. And the second element, and this is what we would tell someone, what do you need to know to be a Christian? You need to know you're a sinner and you need to know uh, that Christ came. And verse four has a wonderful description of it for us. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior appeared. You have that in a nutshell is the incarnation. It's the epiphany of Christ. And it's um, his appearing. Uh, Turn back to 1 Timothy 3.16. We have that great statement of the incarnation using the same word, epiphany, appearance. So 1 Timothy 3.16, great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested, he appeared, he was an epiphany in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up to glory. And so the focus of attention in verse 4 is the appearance of uh, the goodness and kindness of God, ultimately Christ. So ultimately the focus of verse four is gonna be the appearance of Christ. But you can look at verse four in one of two ways. You could look at it as the act of the father in sending his son to appear, that is to uh, be with us. And that's a, a way you could look at the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior being of God our Father, sending the Son to appear. Uh, and we can think of verses, very familiar verses, John three sixteen. for in this way God loved the world, that he gave his only Son, his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Or that great verse in Romans 8, 32, he who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? The action of the father in his loving kindness and goodness, sending his son. Of Romans 5, 8, God demonstrated his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So one way to see this goodness and loving kindness of God is from the Father sending the Son to appear. The other way is looking at it as the goodness and kindness of the Son uh, coming to appear. Uh, But Christ is the focus uh, that um, we have the goodness and loving kindness of God appearing in the person and the work of uh, the Lord Jesus Christ. So the two things that are background to the saying is uh, 
our knowledge of our depravity and knowledge of the goodness and kindness of God appearing, the epiphany of that. Then the faithful saying is in verses, I think, five and six primarily. Uh, On the basis of our depravity, understanding of that, and the goodness and loving kindness of God appearing, he saved us. It's the work of God's salvation that the saying is all about. Uh, It's he saved us and he gives us a negative and a positive. First of all, not because of works of done by us in righteousness. So God's salvation on the basis of the goodness and loving kindness of God appearing, our salvation is not on the basis of righteous things which we have done. It's not anything we do. You remember Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace are you saved through faith. And this is not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Uh, And Paul would say in Romans 3, uh, for by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. And the Bible reminds us over and over again that it's not by righteous things that we have done that he saved us. But uh, one of the great buts of scripture, but according to his own mercy. It's the exercise of God's mercy on which our salvation depends. The initiative of God. And uh, I want you to go to Ephesians and we'll read a couple passages in Ephesians as we think about this initiative of God. God is not beholden to us. God is not waiting on us to do something. God takes the initiative himself in bringing salvation to us. And so if we go to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, uh, part of that excellent sentence that goes on for like 14 verses, but just a part of it. Ephesians 1, 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. Why? According to the purpose of his will. To the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. It's the initiative of God uh, in and God the Father in bringing salvation through his son. <clears throat> and then turn to Ephesians 2. Ephesians 2 verse 1. We see this initiative again. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our own flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy 
because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. So he saved us, not because of works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, the initiative of his mercy. That's the basis, the foundation in the saying, the foundation of our salvation. And then the agent in our salvation, which is the second part of the saying, is the conclusion of verse 5, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. So you have, perhaps as we look at this, the Father who sends his Son to appear, and through the work of Christ he saves us, not because of what we've done, but according to his mercy, <clears throat> and, by, and it's through the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. It's one action, but he describes it in those two ways. Uh, it's uh, the washing of regeneration. Uh, he is it's being born again. Uh, that's what, uh, that is what is being accomplished in his salvation of us. We're regenerated, we're renewed. <clears throat> and the means by which he renews us, regenerates us as the word of God. Uh, Peter will say it this way, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. Uh, in Ephesians 5, when he's illustrating the husband's responsibility by the Christ care of his church, he says that Christ gave himself for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. God uses the word of God as a means by which he regenerates us and renews us and the renewal and it's all by the Holy Spirit. It's the work of the Holy Spirit in regeneration and the renewing of our spirits. And so the saying, I think, is focused here on this display of God's salvation. He saves us not uh, according to what we have done, but according to his mercy through the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. So I'm suggesting to you that's the saying. That's the proverbial saying that was well known in the early church and follows up with the fruit of that in verse 7, which we'll look at in a minute. Verse 6, which completes the saying, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. So we have this wonderful work of salvation and we have in these verses a display of the work of the triune God. The Father sending his Son, the Son that comes and the Holy Spirit applying that in regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> and this Spirit was poured out on us richly by the Father through Jesus Christ our Savior. It's just a wonderful Description of the work of the triune God in our, in our salvation. And perhaps that's really the intent and the, the spiritual truth and the doctrinal truth that's the heart of the saying is you and I are saved by the work of the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And it's such a wonderful truth we need to reflect on and think about that. God sending, God the Father sending His Son, the Spirit appearing 
the epiphany. The Holy Spirit is the agent in regeneration and renewal. And the Holy Spirit being poured out by the Father through Jesus Christ. Uh, turn to 1 Peter chapter 1, uh, verse 2. This um, is an interesting parallel in thinking about the work of the triune God in our redemption. <clears throat> so 1 Peter 1, verse 2. Speaking to those dispersed, he says, uh, according in verse two, according to the foreknowledge of God, the father in the sanctification of the spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. So in that one verse, Peter is giving a summary of the work of the triune God in our our redemption, which I think is the focus of Paul in this faithful saying. And uh, thinking about the Trinity and thinking about the work of the Trinity is really very important. It's just not a theological uh, speculation that we dabble in. And even though there's the, the, the doctrine of the Trinity was much debated in the early history of the church, <clears throat> I find it very interesting here this letter written within 30 years of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the understanding of the work of the triune God is so clearly presented. Uh, Paul didn't have any problem understanding it or presenting it to the believers and them presenting it. And again, it's not just a a theological um, extracurricular thing that we work in, we, we, we dabble in, look at the end of verse eight, come back to Titus chapter three and the end of verse eight, Paul's talking about all this. And what does he say about this saying in these truths? He says, these things are excellent and profitable for people. Understanding the triune God isn't, um, uh, meaningless. It's excellent and profitable for the people of God. It's something you and I need to grab a hold of in our understanding, in our faith, in our hope. It helps keep us rooted in the work of God in our redemption. It's the fulfillment of all anticipated in the old covenant, but fulfilled in a rich and a wonderful way in the new covenant. And I'm going to come back to verse 7. I'm not skipping it. <clears throat> verse 8, we're there. It says, this, the saying, this saying is trustworthy. And he goes on to tell Titus, I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. Uh, the, the benefit that comes to the people of God who know these things and why Titus is urged to insist on them and make sure that people understand these things is because those, so that those who have believed in God, it's a heart and soul of their faith, would then live out their salvation uh, in devoting themselves to good works. It's to motivate them to follow God in faith and obedience. So I'll come back to verse seven. I haven't 
forgotten it. Perhaps it is part of the saying as well, that maybe the saying is verses 5, 6, and 7. That's certainly uh, very possible. It's, it's, in a sense, the fruit of our salvation. The loving kindness and goodness of God the Father in sending his Son to appear and uh, saving us, not by anything that we have done, but according to his mercy, through the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, who is poured out richly upon us through Christ Jesus, so that so that work of salvation of the triune God is so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. There are two results of the saving work of God in our lives, as Paul is laying it out here in this text. The first is our justification. We're made right with God. Our sins are taken to Christ, and Christ's righteousness is applied to us. We have, um, in a broader way, in, in Sunday school, in, uh, on Sunday mornings, Ryan is currently teaching us through the Ordo Salutis. <clears throat> and in this saying, and this result, we have, in a sense, a mini Ordo Salutis. Uh, we have regeneration, we have justification, and then your inheritance, glorification. Uh, so take a moment and let's look at the um, uh, another presentation of that in uh, Romans eight twenty eight to thirty, very familiar passage. It's not that the Ordo Salutis in, in its truth wasn't believed beforehand, but in the in the re- time of the Reformation, uh, Puritan William Perkins preached on this particular passage and developed what he referred to as the golden chain of uh, redemption. And um, our inheritance has come down to refer to it as the order of salvation. But in Romans 8, 28 and 30, you see this. And we know that for, all, <clears throat> that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. So coming back to Titus 3, The benefit of the work of salvation of God in our lives is that we're justified uh, by his grace and we become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. In other words, we have an inheritance. The inheritance is glorification. Uh, A sure and a future hope that we have in Christ is ours because of the redeeming work of God in our lives for the regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, the loving kindness and goodness of God and the appearing of Jesus Christ. We have a a great and wonderful and and a sure and and certain future hope. That's the fruit of God's redemption. We are right with God now and we will be with him 
forever. Uh, That's the fruit of the redemption that God provides in us. You and I struggle sometimes now because of uncertainties, temptations, struggles. And what Paul is saying, we have hope now because we're justified, we're made right in Christ. We have his righteousness applied to us. And we have a sure and certain hope. We have an inheritance. Um, Sometimes we get an earthly inheritance by our parents or grandparents when they go on and we receive some benefit from them. And that's wonderful. Or it can be helpful. But the greatest inheritance any of our grandparents and some of you have had wonderfully believing grandparents great-grandparents, perhaps parents, the most wonderful heritage that you can get from them is the heritage of faith. And that faith that points you to a sure and certain hope in Christ. Uh, One other passage, and we'll conclude on this. Turn to 1 Peter, back to 1 Peter, chapter 1. We looked at verse 2. But let's pick it up at verse 3. 1 Peter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Who by, the, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. God our Father, through Jesus Christ, and obviously the work of the Holy Spirit has caused us to be born again. We're made right with God and we have a living hope to a an inheritance that's imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. And what's most wonderful and helpful for us is that inheritance is kept in heaven for you. But that's not the only thing that's kept. You, who by God's power are being guarded, who are being kept through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Not only does God keep your inheritance, sure and certain, but he keeps you for the inheritance by his grace. And so the, the saying of the salvation that we have through the work of the triune God is so that you and I might be justified now and confident of forever so that we'll live in the hope Uh, that God has given to us through Christ. May you place your stand on your justification and on your sure and certain hope in Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for the wonderful truth of your word. May we grow in our understanding of it and may the richness of your work of redemption be for us uh, daily. Uh, joy and hope and encouragement as we face challenges that come our way. 
May these truths be uh, an ever-present help to us uh, to maintain our, our view toward your great future hope that you give, have given us. Help us to stand strong in Christ and stand hopeful for the future. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.